Welcome to Bible with Bill. This is episode four and we have Bill here and we also have Hannah. Say hi Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) Hello Hannah. (laughs) Um, Bill, would you like to share what you're going to be doing this morning and maybe a bit how it connects with other ones and a bit where we're moving on to something new? Certainly. Um, Hello everyone. Uh, this is the fourth, as Alice says, the fourth uh, of these podcasts. Um, we're going to start doing something a bit different um, from this one. So uh, up till now, they've all been one-offs and they've been a quite different, uh, a different range of topics. Um, what I've decided to do is start a series just so we can go a bit deeper into a particular book of the Bible um, it doesn't mean we're not going to do any of the one-offs anymore. We'll, we'll probably sprinkle a few of them in as we go through the series. Um, and also the other thing is I'm, I'm going to try and do them slightly more uh, often. So the aim is to, to do a Bible with Bill every month from now on, um, with possible breaks for Christmas and holidays, but we'll <laughs> see. Um, but the book that we are going to look at, Hannah, if you please, is the book of 1 Timothy. Um, there it is. So uh, why, why 1 Timothy? Um, well, I think the overall aim of these podcasts is to read the Bible well, but also to look at, look at how to read the Bible well. Um, so it's both to, to, to get stuff out of the Bible, but also to think about the process that we use to, to read well. Um, and the fact is that Paul, Paul's letters, which make up a big chunk of the New Testament, are not easy. They're, they're a challenge. And I, I reckon if you, if you can handle them well, if you've got a good, uh, a good approach to interpretation that works with Paul then you can read most of the Bible well, because the, the principles um, really pay off with Paul. Um, why 1 Timothy out of Paul's letters? Um, well, uh, there's a slight connection with what we did last time. If you've seen the the last um, podcast, that was on the role of pastor, and it got quite a lot of interest. And so in a way, the book of 1 Timothy does address similar themes. It thinks about church leadership. It thinks about the role of leaders. Um, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus are known as the pastoral letters. So that there is a connection there. But on the other hand, I, I think it's a mistake uh, often to read the Bible with a, a narrow agenda. Often we come to it with a particular question and that, that agenda kind of shapes the the stuff that we get from reading the Bible. And I think it's healthier often to let the Bible set the agenda, to be open to whatever it wants to say is important. Um, for example, I was talking with Alice about this before, um, it's amazing how often people read the book of Job because they've got questions about suffering. And there's a, there is a lot of suffering in the book of Job. And so it's a reasonable assumption that, you know, if I've got all these questions like, why does God allow suffering? Job must be the place to, to find the answers. The trouble with reading the book of Job with that narrow agenda, that narrow question is actually the book of Job doesn't answer those questions, uh, because the agenda of the book of Job is to talk about something else 
which is God's sovereignty. Um, the, the paradox is that if we're willing to listen to the book of Job and, and to allow it to set the agenda and to listen to what it says, then along the way, a lot of our practical questions about how to live with suffering, how to accept suffering, uh, are addressed. Um, but it's about being open to, to the Bible. So, so that's our, our aim. We're, we're not reading 1 Timothy with a particular question in mind. We're just going to say, um, we're going to read this as well as we can and see what um, the scripture wants to teach us. Um, uh, finally, in, in, by way of introduction, uh, this morning is really about laying the foundations and setting the scene. It's about um, what are the principles for reading Paul's letters well. Um, and so we we won't be digging deep into 1 Timothy this morning. It's more about preparing the ground. Um, now, I know that some of you will already know some of this stuff. Um, and so... Uh, I'm, I'm doing it in order that we can we can lay the ground. If, if I'm telling you stuff that you already know, then see it as a, a kind of useful revision. Um, I'll try and make it interesting. But if it's if it's all stuff that you already know, I don't mean to patronise you, but maybe skip on to the next one. Um, is that all right? That's great. Okay. So here we go. It's good to presume no prior knowledge, I always think. <laughs> well, so I think that's great. Yeah, that, that's very much what we're doing today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, firstly, Paul is difficult. Um, next slide, please, Hannah. Paul is, he's tricky to, to understand. Um, and I think what often happens is um, people go to weddings and they're sitting in a wedding and one of the readings will be 1 Corinthians 13. And they sit there and they hear love is patient, love is kind, love keeps no record of wrongs. And they think, oh, that's lovely. I like this Paul guy. Um, I'm going to read more of Paul because, um, yeah, that really touched me. And so what should I read? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 was lovely. So why don't we see what he says next? Let's read 1 Corinthians 14. Now have a go at reading 1 Corinthians 14. And I think, what? Is this written by the same person? First, it's, it's impossible to understand. And what I do understand, I really don't like the sound of. Um, so maybe 1 Corinthians 14 is the exception. So let's dive in somewhere completely different. Let's... Well, where, which is the first Pauline book in the Bible? Oh, Romans. Okay, so Romans is the kind of introductory. It must be it's the first one. It's the introduction. So we'll start there. Romans 1. Flipping egg. Yeah, why is this? <laughs> Who is this guy? Um, and and they, reading Paul is very confusing. It can be very confusing. He's difficult. And I think what people do is tend to do one of two things. They either give up and they go back to reading something which is more accessible, like the Gospels. Um, or if they use Paul, they tend to, what I notice is, I, I think this happens more with Paul than anyone else. They take one verse way out of context. They ignore the context of the whole letter that it sits in. They ignore any cultural differences between us, our situation and Paul's situation. And then they use that verse to win an argument, you know, to beat someone over the head. Well, Paul says, 
you know, and whatever the arguments about homosexuality or or whatever, Paul says, therefore, bang. Um, and that I would suggest that is a, a bad way to read Paul. Um, and the trouble with that in particular is I think a lot of people are put off from reading Paul by that use of him. You know, when he's used as a weapon to win an argument, he comes across as mean and nasty. Um, and they, a lot of people reject Paul. They say he, he doesn't sound like the kind of person I want as an authority in my life. He always seems to be laying down the law about stuff. And I, I would just say that that may not be fair. I think when we read Paul well, when we get to the heart of what he's about, we discover someone who is very different from that stereotype. Um, the trouble is it takes a little bit of effort. Uh, we can't assume that we can pick up Paul and just read him straight off and it's all going to be clear. Um, so why is Paul difficult? Next slide, please, Hannah. Uh, why is Paul difficult? Fundamentally, because these are letters. The, genre, the Pauline genre is letters. But in particular, they're letters between Paul and people that Paul knows really well. And so reading one of Paul's letters is like eavesdropping on a conversation between two parties who know each other really well. Um, I think the best way of explaining is if I, if a, if I come up with a, a, a fake example. Um, imagine uh, the Apostle Silas Crawley is writing two letters of advice to two churches. But the first letter of advice is to Hope Chapel. And Hope Chapel, Silas knows really well. And Hope Chapel knows Silas really well. They, they understand where he's coming from. They understand the way he speaks, what he means when he says certain things. Um, they know who he is and what he's like. And he knows who they are, who we are and what we're like. There's loads of shared history. And there's loads, so there's loads of understanding, shared understanding that's built up. Um, in other words, when, when Silas is writing to Hope Chapel, there's loads that he doesn't need to say because it's all taken for granted and assumed. Um, and so when he's speaking into a particular situation, everyone understands the situation he's talking about. He doesn't need to lay it out and set the context. Um, he might tell a joke. He might be ironic. Everyone in Hope Chapel would understand that he doesn't mean what he's saying at that point. But he doesn't need to explain, I'm only joking. Because there's that relationship. Okay, but the second letter that the Apostle Silas Crawley is writing is to a church in the Shinjuku region uh, district of Tokyo in Japan. It's a church that, where he's never been. It's a church that doesn't know him. They have none of that understanding, none of that relationship, none of that history and previous conversation. Um, 
but he's offering advice on a very similar church situation because he's a widely respected global church leader. Can you see how the letter that he would write would be completely different? He would have to explain far more about why he's saying certain things. He'd have to explain his assumptions and where he's coming from. Uh, he'd have to set the context and the background and explain why he's saying what he's, what he's saying so that they understand the, the principles behind it. Um, he's far more likely to speak in general principles because he doesn't know how the application works in their setting. He doesn't know the characters involved and the particular issues that they're facing. And so he's pr going to probably keep it far more general and rely on them to work out how to apply those general principles. Um, he's going to be far more cautious in not being ironic, not making jokes, not using shorthand, but he's going to unpack carefully so that they explain fully. All because they don't know him and he doesn't know them. Now let's suppose that in putting these two envelopes, that these two letters into their envelopes, Silas, whoops, he gets them muddled up. And the church in Shinjuku gets the letter that was intended for Hotwells. How easy is it for them to make sense of the advice that, he, that they're getting? Um, the Hotwells church are going to be thinking, Silas, we know all this. You know, of course, it's all right. Who do you think we are? We're not, we're not strangers. You know, you're, you're telling us stuff we already know. But the Shinjuku church are in exactly the same situation as we're in when we, we read a letter of Paul's. Um, we don't have all the context that helps to explain. Um, it's, it's a little bit like... Um, Paul's letters are an ongoing conversation. It's like listening to someone on the phone where you can't hear what the other person's saying. You don't know who they're on the phone to. And by listening to, your, to what they're saying, you, uh, by overhearing the conversation, you can sometimes work out what's going on. But you have, you, often you can't. Often you need more information to make sense of the conversation. We only have Paul's side of the correspondence. And even then there are gaps. Um, we have two letters that we call 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. They're, 1 Corinthians is certainly not the first letter that Paul wrote to Corinth. You know, it comes at some point in an exchange of letters. Did 2 Corinthians follow 1 Corinthians? Probably not. They're very different. I, I would say that's several letters further on. But they're the only two that we have. And so the, the art of reading Paul is to try and fill in those gaps to make sense of it. Um, there's another reason that it's, that it's tricky, which is these are what uh, theologians call... There's a technical term for them. They're occasional letters. And that doesn't mean that they happen from time to time. What it means is that they're letters that are occasioned they're, they're triggered off by a particular problem or question or situation. Paul is addressing something very specific. But often, sometimes we know what that situation is. Often we don't. We don't understand 
the, the situation that he's speaking to, the question that he's giving an answer to. Um, and that raises a particular difficulty, which is, does this advice, does this command apply just to that particular situation or is it general? Does it apply to all believers at all times in all places? Can we take that particular instruction to that particular situation and apply it directly to ourselves? Sometimes we can and sometimes we can't. But it can be tricky to work out whether that's the case. For example, if, if in Silas's letter to the Hotwells Church, to Hope Chapel, he says, um, tell the 18-year-olds to go on YWAM on their gap year. Now, that could mean two things. Either there are a couple of 18-year-olds who are twins, um, and everyone in Hope Chapel knows who he's talking about, and they've got a gap year coming up, and they, they only have, the situation is they have two options. They either have to get a job working for a year, and the, the options are limited in the job they're going to do, or they've got this opportunity to go on YWAM. And Silas is saying, for those two, right now, the best option for them is to go on YWAM. Um, but what does that mean to Shinjuku? Uh, uh, is he said they don't know if he's applying that to all 18 year olds worldwide they should all go on YWAM because that's the best for them regardless of who they are maybe Silas knows this this pair of twins and he knows that exact it's exactly what these two need because of their gifting their maturity where they are um but he wouldn't dream of laying it out as a blanket rule to all 18-year-olds worldwide. But we don't know which is which. Is it a general rule or is it a particular application? Um, third, different, third thing that makes it difficult, if it's not difficult enough already, there's a third layer of difficulty. Yes, please, Hannah, thank you. Which is, think of the cultural differences between a church in Hotwells in Bristol and a church in Shinjuku district of Tokyo in Japan. There are huge differences uh, between Japanese culture and UK culture in values and beliefs and assumptions, um, political differences, religious differences, social differences. Just think about, for example, the role of women. The role of women in UK society, Western society, and the role, the role of women in Japanese society, which is changing fast, but it's changing from something that was very, very different 100 years ago, and it is becoming more Western. But it's still very different today. So is Silas's advice, advice that he knows that will work in hot wells, but probably wouldn't work in Shinjuku, or is this advice that will work wherever you are? Is it kind of globally applicable? For example, uh, maybe he advises uh, courting couples in hot wells how to behave in public. Well, we're in a UK culture and there's something about respectable behaviour in the UK which would probably be less respectable 
in Japan, which is a highly formal, respectable, you know, respect and honor are far more highly valued in Japan than they are in the UK. Um, and so is his advice culturally appropriate to hot wells, but not appropriate to Japan? Now do the same comparison between um, a church in hot wells in 2023 and a church in the Greco-Roman Empire 2000 years ago. All of those cultural differences, political, religious, social differences are only magnified by the 2000 year gap. For example, 1 Timothy, Paul talks about the, the attitude that the, the Christians in Ephesus should have towards political leaders. But that was the Roman Empire. How does, how does Paul's advice about how the church should view the emperor and regional governors in an empire, how does that translate to a liberal democracy in, in the 21st century? Is it, does it still apply? It might do, but it might not. Um, so th those are the things that make it difficult. Um, to interpret one of Paul's letters well, we need to do two things. Now, we need to ask ourselves two questions. First of all, what does it mean? Just, you know, we, we can read the words he, he's using. We can, we can read what he's saying, but why is he saying what he's saying? We need to kind of uncover the principles behind it. What's his real meaning in saying what he's saying? Um, and, but then secondly, having understood what he means, how do we apply it? Second question is, how do we then apply that in our situation? And the trouble is often Christians, they do the second thing without doing the first thing. They take something Paul says and apply it to themselves without doing the kind of the, the archaeology, the excavation and getting at the heart of his real meaning. Um, how, is, how is Paul's message to Timothy and the church in Ephesus, how is that God's message to us is the question. Um, the difficulty with Paul's letters is that Paul's letters to Ephesus, in what way are they God's word for us? Um, now that may all sound tricky. Um, it probably does sound tricky. The funny thing is, I reckon a lot of us are already doing it without realizing it. We, we do that cultural translation um, that that interpretation as we read Paul's letters, but without thinking it. Uh, let me give you some examples. Uh, next slide, please, Hannah. So, yeah, uh, here is uh, 1 Timothy. Um, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. So let me tell you, what do you think? Is that a message that's appropriate to, um, to the church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago and also appropriate to us? Or is it one that we can say maybe it doesn't apply to us? What do we think? So I'd be interested to know what cultural messages elaborate hairstyles were for Ephesian women in the context of Ephesus? Like, what, what was that communicating about their values 
and about other people's values towards them. Which is exactly the right question to ask. But I, I'd say that most people assume that that's not for us. Right, I see what you mean, yeah. I mean, they certainly do yeah. at HTB. <laughs> you know, if, if you weren't allowed to wear pearls, you know, it, the church would collapse. <laughs> Just having a little joke at HTB's expense. But honestly, hairstyles, gold... How many Christians apply Paul's instruction here to themselves? Well, no. You know, my daughters have some gold, I think, uh, some jewellery, and I don't bar them from wearing it. Um, so that, most people would agree, common sense says doesn't apply today. But let's have a look at the next one. Uh, if you can click on. Yeah, there we go. What's this say? Um, a deacon must be faithful to his wife. So a deacon, an elder, someone in the church, is that a message that we can dismiss today? Or do we think it still applies? What does common sense say? I would say most, most believers in most churches would say, actually, no, that is still good advice. In fact, it's universal advice. That's for all churches at all times, in all places. So here we have... Two examples, you know, there's nothing in, in the text that says you can ignore this, and you but you have to apply this, but we all do. So we're, we're already do, making that judgment. We're already deciding for ourselves, that doesn't apply, this does apply. So that's, maybe it's not so hard after all to read Paul. Well, let's look at the next one. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Is that culturally relevant um, and, and situationally relevant um, 2,000 years ago, but not relevant today? Or is that something that should be applied today? Churches are divided. Uh, and it's a huge argument. It's a huge controversy. You know, the role of women in church leadership is a, a, a big issue for churches today. And it's all about Paul. It's all about how we interpret a verse like 1 Timothy 2.12. Um, and, uh, and I think the problem is most churches read into a verse like that their current practice. So Hope Chapel is a church where there are w women in leadership. And so I think most people in, ch in Hope Chapel would read that verse and say, doesn't apply to us. But no, it's no longer relevant in, in our situation, in our society, in, in, in our culture. There are other churches today that would read that verse and say, that's God's word and that's why we obey it. So how do you, but the, the, the trouble is reading into the text based on your current practice, I'd say, is not a good way to interpret Paul. There's a better way to read so that, so that it's Paul's voice that we're hearing rather than, rather than our own assumptions about what Paul is saying. Um, so we've looked at the, the issues, the, the problems with reading Paul. Uh, we're now going to go on and look at how to do it well. How do you read Paul in a way that overcomes these challenges? Um, by the way, oh, we will come back to 1 Timothy 2.12, 
about uh, does Paul, why does Paul not permit a woman to teach uh, or have authority? Um, we'll look at that, maybe not the next one, but the one after. Um, so just to leave you hanging. Um, so fundamentally, to read Paul well, we need to do some detective work. We need to fill in the gaps. All that missing context and explanation, um, which you get in letters between people who know each other well, we have to do some detective work to try and make sense of why he's saying what he's saying. Um, and fill it in as much as possible. Um, how do you do that? Uh, here are my tips, my five top tips for reading Paul well. Number one. Um, Number one, read the whole letter. Read the whole letter. Um, Tom Wright has a brilliant saying, which is, a word means what it means in a sentence. A sentence means what it means in a paragraph. And a paragraph means what it means within a chapter or within a letter. And it's true. If you want to make sense of a verse or a word, you have to put it in its textual context. You know, it, it, only mean, it only carries meaning within that sentence. And the sentence only carries meaning within that paragraph. Um, and the, the big risk is that you extract a word or a sentence. And as soon as you do that, you lose the opportunity to, to make sense of it. It makes it much harder to make sense. Or rather, the risk is that you'll make it mean something that it doesn't mean. And I think this is especially true of Paul, because Paul is a brilliant writer. Um, at first glance, it can look like this is just a random jumble of thoughts, of, of unconnected ideas that Paul's just kind of jammed together. In fact, once you see it... Um, I reckon all of his letters, with the possible exception of one, all of them have one overarching theme, one overall question or problem that he's addressing. And he unpacks his answer in all sorts of different ways. But they, everything he says fits within that overarching message, that overarching uh, structure. And sometimes he, he goes off at tangents. He always comes back again. And the tangent is always illuminates something that's to do with that, that overarching theme. And so one of the biggest, the, the most valuable things that you can do in trying to make sense of a little bit of Paul, one of Paul's letters is see how it fits within the overall theme. Um, it's funny, I, I recognise that that Paul does this because when I'm when I'm writing a talk when I'm writing a, a Sunday morning talk one of the main things I do is the, the way I write it is I, I ask myself what is the one question that I'm trying to answer this morning and then I, I may answer it in different ways I might, might find different angles on it but it's all held together by um, that that rich question which which links everything in the talk. Uh, and when I read Paul, I see him doing the same. Um, and so a good test of, of whether you've got a good reading of a sentence or not 
is how does it fit? Is it coherent? Is it coherent with the whole agenda? But also, how does it advance the argument? How does it contribute to the argument that, that Paul is making? Um, and uh, let's have a quick look at one Tim- the, int- the opening of 1 Timothy. Because right up front in 1 Timothy, Paul gives us a big clue as to what the whole letter is about. Um, and and it's here. So I'm just going to read through. So this is Paul's introduction, or rather the opening of, of Paul's letter to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our, our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my loyal child in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul straight into it, he says, I urge you, as I did when I was on my way to Macedonia, to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine and not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations rather than the divine training that is known by faith. But the aim of such instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and sincere faith. Now, I would say that in 1 Timothy, Paul's overall message is there are two kinds of teaching. There are two kinds of teaching. And all the way through, he he sets these two kinds of teaching in opposition. Both the kind of the teaching and the kind of people who do that teaching, but also the results of those two different kinds of teaching. All the way through, he's got this opposition um, going on, the contrast between these two different kinds of teaching. And the reason is there are people in this church in Ephesus who are doing the wrong kind. And as a result, it's bearing bad fruit. There are things going on in the church which Paul urgently wants to, to change. And so Timothy is under instruction from Paul uh, on Paul's behalf to stop those who are doing bad teaching <laughs> And on the, on the other hand, to model good teaching. And that's Paul's whole agenda. And I would strongly argue that all the way through the letter, all six chapters speak into that, illustrate that, um, advance that argument uh, somehow. And it's about finding out how, um, how they do so. But it also really helps when we're tackling a difficult, a difficult verse. Um, that we're scratching our head, like the one about women teaching with authority, with, with authority, it helps us to make sense of what's going on and, and what Paul's real message, what's really going on, what's Paul's agenda, what's, what's he really saying. Um, so, uh, job number one, read the whole letter. There are two little tips on how to do that well. Firstly, think in paragraphs. Um, the people who, who write our English Bibles are smart and they help us to uh, make sense of Paul's letters by dividing Paul's text into paragraphs. In, in the, in the um, original surviving manuscripts, there are no paragraphs. There are no uh, paragraphs. There's no, very little punctuation in the original Greek manuscripts. But in, in producing an English um, Bible, 
the, the translators chop it up into paragraphs and they're really, they do that for a reason. They ch carefully choose when to use, start a new paragraph. And it's all about this idea that Paul's argument is advancing step by step. So it should be possible to take a paragraph and boil it down to a single point. What's the point of that paragraph? And that's a really useful discipline in trying to make sense of what the whole letter says. There's another little tip, which is, uh, this is a useful clue, um, particularly in uh, Paul's later letters, he often sums up the theme of the whole letter in his greeting at the front. Uh, he doesn't do it so much in the early letters, but Timothy is one of his last letters. And I reckon he does so here. Um, and I love Tom Wright's translation of the first couple of verses, because I think it really brings it out. Paul, see if you notice what Tom is, try, is hinting at here. Uh, Paul, an apostle of King Jesus, according to the command of God our Saviour and King Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and King Jesus our Lord. Isn't it extraordinary what it does when you stop assuming that Christ is a surname and recognise that it's a royal title? And three times in these two verses, Paul is saying, King Jesus, King Jesus, King Jesus. What is the focus of the good teaching? The good teaching that results in faith and love, as opposed to the false teaching that is just a distraction. Good teaching at its heart is all about King Jesus. The birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and current rule of King Jesus. That, that's Paul's gospel, and it's the heart of good teaching. You can teach all sorts of stuff, but is, the, is, is it rooted in the message that Jesus is king? Um, there you go. You can have that, those tips for free. Um, so, so the first tip is read the whole letter and understand the, whatever you're trying to, the, the verse in context. Secondly, look at the context of the whole of scripture, the whole Bible. Um, use the rest of scripture to provide context. You get loads of historical context when you, when you put um, one of Paul's letters in the New Testament picture. Um, so Paul wrote 13 letters. There's lots of um, useful information about key questions like who is Paul? Who is Timothy? Timothy is he's mentioned in Acts. Uh, we meet him, I think, Acts 15 or 16. He's a believer. He's much younger than, than Paul um, and probably still a teenager when he joins Paul's second uh, missionary journey around the, uh, around the Mediterranean. Um, and, and he becomes one of Paul's co-workers. Paul, Paul has this phrase in his letters. He talks about the work, the ergon is his little, um, his little phrase. And what he means is this little group of 20 or 30 people who support him in his mission, his fellow missionaries, as he's going around the Eastern Mediterranean, planting churches, nurturing churches, trying to get them off the ground. And, and he uses these people as messengers. They carry his letters to the churches and, and they explain the letters to the 
to the churches. But he also, from time to time, he gets them to act in his place. He, he, he kind of drops them into a church um, f- in order to kind of do what Paul would do if he was there, to teach, to model, to explain, to encourage. Um, and Timothy is part of that gang. Um, he's he's interested. He, Timothy, we learn, had a Jewish mother and a Gentile father, which makes him perfect for this kind of cross-cultural Jewish-Gentile mission that, that Paul is engaged in. It's all useful information when we're trying to make sense of one Timothy and w- what's going on. Um, we also learn a lot about the Ephesians. It's very useful with um, with Paul's letters in particular to have Acts alongside. It's like the historical context is laid out for us. And Acts tells us about the church in Ephesus and the history of the church in Ephesus. We know that it was planted by Paul, but also that he spent three years there, which is a long time. And that tells you that as far as Paul's concerned, this is an important church. For some reason, it's one that he particularly wants to be healthy and to thrive. Um, he appoints elders uh, and then he carries on in his, on his journey. But then he comes back to Ephesus several times and he writes to Ephesus. He's concerned about the health of the Ephesian church. Um, so firstly, it provides useful historical context. Secondly, um, the rest of the Bible can help to explain the situation, the particular situation that has triggered off this letter, 1 Timothy, to, to Timothy in Ephesus. Um, and again, Acts is particularly helpful. Uh, here's this little bit from Acts 20. Um, now, the situation here is Paul is saying goodbye to the elders of the Ephesian church, having been with them for a long period of time. And it's an emotional farewell. And he gathers the Ephesian elders together and he makes this little speech. But as part of the speech, he, he kind of has this prophecy and it's alarming. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Now listen to this. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So even from, so this is a problem that Paul sees, he prophesies happening. And the problem is people within the church, elders within the church, um, becoming, what does he say? Men will arise and distort the truth. They'll preach a false gospel and it will have an impact, drawing away disciples after them. In other words, away from the true faith. Now that is rich context, describing exactly the situation that that Paul is writing to Timothy about. Um, It also, uh, uh, reading the whole Bible provides useful context to help us with this question of, is this situational or is this for all times and all places? when we read something like, I do not allow women to, to teach or have authority, is that a consistent with the whole of biblical practice and biblical instruction? Or are there a range of positions? Are there a range of options? 
when we read Acts, when we read Paul, do we find that actually he writes to women in positions of authority? He mentions women who might even be deacons or indeed apostles. Do we find, for example, in Acts 18, an example of a woman teaching? You know, all of that context will help to, to fill in the, the, the context within which Paul gives this instruction and helps us to make sense of, is this just this particular situation that Paul's speaking to, or is this a general rule for all times and all places? Um, and finally, thirdly, Anna, sorry, uh, yes, there is useful historical information that we can get from other places. Uh, just as an example, Ephesus. Where was Ephesus? What was it like? Um, next slide, please. Can I just quickly ask you a question? Yeah, yeah. Why do you keep talking about Ephesus as <laughs> regards 1 Timothy? Good question. So what... Uh, Timothy is in Ephesus. Right. Timothy has been planted in Ephesus um, to do exactly what I just described. He's on behalf of Paul, acting in Paul's place to try and correct the church. And Paul's writing a letter to Timothy. Yeah. Ephesus, right? yeah. yeah. So the, the pastoral letters, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, they're different from most of Paul's letters in being written to an individual yeah. church leader rather than to be read out to the whole church at yeah. a church meeting. But there are lots of little clues in Timothy that it was a letter that he intended for Timothy to read, but for everyone else in the church to kind of overhear. Right. You know, there are, there are times when he, he does seem to be addressing the whole church. Um, but yes, that's the, that's the historical situation. So Ephesus is a useful, uh, the more we know about Ephesus in about 60 AD, the, the more useful context we're going to have. Um, so if we can have the map, um, there it is. Can you see Ephesus? Uh, what we call Turkey, that the Romans called Asia, well, nowadays we might call it Asia Minor to distinguish it from what we call Asia. Um, the western end of Asia Minor, on the coast, you'll find uh, the church of Ephesus, or the, rather the city of Ephesus. Um, what do we know about it? What's important? It was a big city. It was a provincial capital. As far as the Romans were concerned, it was the, the, the leading city um, for the whole province of Asia Minor, for the whole of modern-day Turkey, Ephesus was their, their regional centre. Um, it was a big city on an east-west trade route, which was always attracts Paul's interest because he's interested in the spread of the gospel. Um, so, like Corinth, also on a, an east-west trade route. Um, so the key thing is it was strategic, um, if, F, if the church in Ephesus was healthy, it would have a good effect on all sorts of other churches around that region, places like Colossae and Laodicea. Um, it was so big that it was probably like Corinth in being a collection of house church, big house churches rather than a single congregation. Um, other things about Ephesus... It had a very, very particular religious culture. There was a certain 
cult in Ephesus which dominated the religion of the city and um, and provides some rich context when we look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy about women. Um, and But it's part of the Greco-Roman Empire. So again, we can learn lots from other historical sources about the values, the beliefs of, of the Greco-Roman Empire. So in summary, and this, this is probably hopefully answering the, the question you had. Putting all of this together, um, and, and particularly reading Titus as well as 1 Timothy, what seems to have happened is this. Um, it, it, so sticking with the map for the time being, sorry. That's all right. Lovely. So you see the island of Crete. If I point at the screen, that won't make any sense on the... Anyway. So, so you see, yeah, the long island there uh, is Crete. Um, so uh, due south of Ephesus, long horizontal island. Um, Paul, Timothy and Titus have planted a church on Crete. Paul and Timothy set off north heading for Macedonia, leaving Titus to kind of um, nurture this brand new church on Crete, which has some issues which are similar to the issues in Ephesus, but it's a different setting. It's a brand new church. On their way up to Macedonia, they call in to Ephesus because it's an important church for Paul and it's on their way. It's when they get there, Paul is alarmed by what he finds, and particularly the way that certain elders seem to be leading the congregation astray. And so there's a quick change of plan, and Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus while he carries on his journey up into Macedonia, into uh, what we call northern Greece. So Timothy is left to sort out the situation in Ephesus. Paul carries on his journey but then he writes to Timothy to kind of reiterate his instructions um, about what Timothy has been left there to do, but also so that the whole church can see that Timothy is authorised by Paul, that he's acting under instruction with Paul's authority, that this isn't, Timothy isn't just some, some young guy who's got his own ideas, but everything that he's saying and doing is part of Paul's agenda for the church in Ephesus. And that's also the agenda of the letter. It's to instruct Timothy, but it's also to authorise Timothy in the eyes of the Ephesian church. And that's the setting, that's the context, that's the, the story behind the letter of 1 Timothy. Okay, are we doing all right? So we've done the first three of my five tips about how to read Paul's letters. Number four. Uh, yes, if we can, yeah. Number four, do exegesis before hermeneutics. Hannah, maybe you'd like to take over. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a technical words, but what they mean is what I've already been describing. Exegesis means understanding the meaning of the text in its original setting. And the key question is, when, when, the church, when Timothy and the church in Ephesus read Paul's letter, what did it mean to them? With all of their context, all of their understanding, all of their background, all of their culture, what would they have heard when they read Paul's words? 
And we need to set aside how it applies to us and do exegesis first. First question, what does it mean to them? And then once you've had a go at that and you've got as good an answer to that question as you, as you can, then you can say, okay, well, if that's the principle behind what Paul was saying, how does that then apply to me, to us, to our situation in our culture? And if you, if you can hold off on the hermeneutics, the application, until you've done some exegesis, you will interpret Paul better. I guarantee it. And in fact, these are the two things you need to be doing with any biblical text. It's about uncovering the true meaning. What would it have meant? What would that genre have meant? What would it have meant in that setting to them? And then applying it to us. Um, it's the key discipline in biblical interpretation. Uh, but then number five, be humble. Because there will be some things you can't answer. There are some, it's the nature of an occasional letter without all the context that helps make, we can fill in some of the gaps, but not all of them. And it's important to accept when we can't answer some questions that that's the case and admit it. We haven't failed. It's just that we haven't been given everything we want. Uh, scripture tells us everything we need. God tells us everything we need to know, not everything we want to know. And it's really useful to accept that and admit it and not to pretend that we can answer every question, particularly in, a, in, in um, literature as difficult as Paul's letters. Um, for example, in 1 Timothy, what are these heresies? You know, Paul talks about myths and genealogies. And a little bit later, he talks about the way they use the law, the Old Testament law. Um, but what exactly were they teaching, these false teachers, these, these elders gone bad? Um, we don't know. We can reconstruct it to a certain extent. We can say well, it's probably similar to this. But um, ultimately, we're guessing. They're, they're educated guesses, but we can't be sure what the heresies are. And you might say, well, that's ridiculous. You know, how in God's word can we not, under, you know, it's a big question as far as the letter is concerned. How can we, um, how can we read the letter? That is the situation. I think we just have to accept it. Um, one final point. Uh, this has all been about scene setting, but there's, a, there's one more thing I need to address, which is there's an elephant in the room when it comes to 1 Timothy. Um, and uh, if you read a commentary on 1 Timothy, in the introduction to the commentary, there is one question that dominates all other questions. The bulk of the, the introductions in the commentaries that I've been reading on one Timothy are obsessed with one question. And the question, Hannah, if you please, is this. The question is, who wrote Paul's first letter to Timothy? Um, and you might say, well, obviously, <laughs> Paul. You're so naive, Alice, so naive. <laughs> because we're clever. 
and we, we question that nowadays. Um, who did? Who really? Who? Re yeah. Obviously, it says it was written by Paul, but who really wrote it, Alice? Um, in, if you go back in history, no one questioned the fact that Paul's letter to Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy, uh, no one questioned who wrote it until the early 18th, uh, sorry, the early 19th century, when German theolo German theologians, when <laughs> a bunch of German theologians suddenly started to ask the question and, and to doubt that it was written by Paul. Um, and that debate has gone on for the last 200 years. Um, and in fact, it's true for many of Paul's letters. Uh, there are 13 letters uh, allegedly by Paul in the New Testament. Out of those 13, seven are gen generally uncontested. You know, the vast majority of scholars accept that they, they were genuinely written by Paul. There are six which are contested, which are questioned. The authorship is questioned to a greater or lesser extent. And the three pastoral letters, one to Timothy and Titus, are the most doubted out of those contested letters. Um, that is a big debate in, acad in academic uh, biblical studies. Um, what are the grounds for questioning uh, whether Paul wrote it? Uh, the argument is largely about style. Um, and so it's both the vocabulary that he uses seems to be different from his other letters. So he'll, he'll use a different word for a particular thing. Um, so, for example, the, the word for Christ's appearance normally in Paul's letters is parousia. But in, in, the, in the pastorals, he uses epiphanea. We, we get the word epiphany from. Why does he use a different word there? Uh, that's just one example. Uh, also, stylistically, um, his rhetoric is, is slightly different. He seems to be speaking in a different voice from. Now, is that because he's speaking in a different voice? Or is it because it's written by a different person? That's the, that's the question. It's, it's quite important to notice that in terms of the content... The content of the pastoral epistle, the pastoral epistles, doesn't disagree with the rest of what Paul says. They're not contradicting what Paul teaches elsewhere. It's more about emphasis. Uh, for example, in many of Paul's other letters, the Holy Spirit is a key key theme. Paul mentions the Spirit far less in in the pastorals. Why is that? Um, and it's true. It's true that in, in style and in the, the emphasis of the content, um, the three pastoral letters, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, are similar to each other and different from Paul's other letters. The question is, why? Why is that? Um, uh, there are still plenty of respected scholars who argue that they are authentic. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a question that all the atheists doubt it and all the Christians believe it. You know, there are, there are solid uh, men and women of faith on both sides of this argument. It's not about believing and unbelieving, faith and lack of faith. 
And it's not about smart professors versus stupid professors. You know, there are, there are good arguments on both sides of the debate. Um, so what to make of it? Um, I think three things. First of all, it's an argument that can never be resolved. We don't have the evidence. Um, 2,000 years later, we're not going to find something in Paul's handwriting. Um, with, it's hard to imagine what evidence could be unearthed that would settle this argument once and for all. Because the arguments on both sides are about the words, you know, the, um, and, and how you interpret the words. Um, and it, it'll never be resolved because there are so many possible explanations on both sides for the differences in, in language and in, in content. Um, you can come up with endless scenarios on both sides of the argument which, which would explain those differences. Um, there's a quote from uh, Gordon Fee, which I absolutely love. Um, next slide, please. Uh, Gordon Fee says, It seems fair to observe that pastoral epistle scholarship is sometimes over-impressed with its own judgments about what Paul could, or especially could not, have said or done. We just don't... It's, it's the last point I made about humility. We just don't know enough. Um, and the, the trouble is, it's a debate that academics love. You know, if you're an academic scholar... This is meat and drink because there's endless opportunity for speculation. For, well, it could maybe the way in which the pastoral epistles came to be and to be handed down was this. Here's a scenario which could conceivably have resulted in the text that we have today. Um, Newton's third law of academic theology is to every PhD, there's an equal and opposite PhD. Um, little joke for the physicist scholars there. Um, but, so that's the first thing. It's an endless debate which will never be resolved. My second take on it is, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Um, on the one hand, when the early church was trying to decide what texts should be part of the New Testament canon and what should be left out, one of the criteria was apostolic authorship. That's one of the things that was important to them. Um, so they rejected, for example, the, there's a text called Third Corinthians. There's another one called the Epistle to the Laodiceans. Now, both of those claim to be by Paul, but they were rejected by the early church. They weren't included in the New Testament canon because they worked out that it, they weren't written by Paul. So it was certainly a big factor for the early church. Um, the trouble is today, a lot of that information is lost. So, for example, um, in the New Testament, we have John's Gospel, we have the Revelation of John, and we have three letters, 1, 2, and 3 John. Was it the same John who wrote all those different texts? Um, who wrote Hebrews? There's nothing in the text to say who, is, who wrote it. And it's just the epistle to the Hebrews. We have no idea who wrote it. Uh, we have no idea who she was, I might say, to wind up the conservative. Um, 
But we, we just don't know. Who wrote half of the Old Testament? We don't know. Um, because I think that the main criteria for judging whether, um, whether a text should be part of Scripture or not, and the main criteria that the early church used was about their experience of the text. Um, did it perform like Scripture performs, like the Word of God performs? In other words, when they read it and studied it, um, did their understanding and relationship with God deepen? Did it come alive spiritually for them? And did that then bear fruit, good fruit in their lives, in a way that other texts, other literature simply doesn't and, and cannot? Um, and their experience was wholeheartedly, yes, the, one Timothy does that. And the uncanny thing is, you know, one, one of the reasons I, I chose to look at one Timothy is that it's not something I've studied much in the past, uh, the pastoral epistles. And in preparing for this series, it's scripture. It, I've, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful text. And I've got so much from it in terms, not just knowledge, but also a richer, deeper experience of God. Um, and, and for me, that's the fundamental question. Um, there's also, finally, a huge irony here. We've looked at the fact that 1 Timothy is about two different kinds of teaching. Now let's revisit, what, next slide please, Hannah. Um, what kind of teaching is he warning against? Um, he's warning against uh, so that you may instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine and not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations and speculations that don't actually result in faith and love and a pure heart and a good conscience. Um, and the penny dropped when I was preparing this, when I was thinking about how do you tackle this question of who wrote 1 Timothy? It seems to me that that is a brilliant description of the kind of academic debate that we're talking about. It's endless speculation. You could also argue it's about genealogy. You know, what, what's the parentage of 1 Timothy? <laughs> who originated it? Uh, that may be a step too far. But, but the fundamental point is that debate will go on and on and on and it won't, it won't result in any um, improvement or very little improvement or deepening of people's faith and love for God because you get that somewhere else. Now, in, if you're in academia, fine, that's your job. It's about objective knowledge. You know, knock yourselves out. If you're, do, if you're doing a, a theology degree, it's an important debate to have. And I'm not decrying it in academia. But in church, the aim of these podcasts is to feed on the word of God in order to deepen our faith and our love for him. Um, and so for the purposes of these podcasts, I'm, I'm acknowledging that that debate happens. And I'm saying I'm going to ignore it. And I am going to talk about Paul as the writer of these letters rather than the author. Um, but that's a deliberate choice, kind of because I want to follow what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy. The aim here is to deepen our faith. Um, 
I think that's it. But, oh yeah, the final thing, if you want to have that conversation, if you want to grab me because you're interested in the, in the arguments for who wrote 1 Timothy, then please do so, because it's a fascinating discussion. Otherwise, I think I've rattled on for too long for me, but there we go. That was absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Bill. You're welcome. That was really you're welcome. helpful. I love a little recap. Should we do the five tips? <laughs> five tips for reading Paul's letter well. The five tips for reading Paul's letter as well. Number one. The whole letter. Read the whole letter and see if you can work out the overall argument. Number two. The whole. The whole context of scripture. Yeah. When you place the letter in yeah. the whole of the New Testament, in the whole of scripture, what insight do you get? Um, but also, how does it sit with other teaching? Where is it all speaking with one voice? Where do you get differences of, of voice? Uh, so that's number three. Other historical context. Yep. You know, where was Ephesus? What kind of city was it? What was its culture? Number four. Exegesis before hermeneutics. And exegesis means? What did it mean to them? Yeah, hermeneutics means? How does that then apply to me? Nice. Okay. And then number five. Be humble. Be Accept humble. that you can't answer every question. That's good. So if we want to deepen in our own lives an understanding of how to read and interpret the Bible well, what sort of practices do you think will be good to start adopting, even if it's like a five-minute practice or a habit, um, whether on our own or in community, that would help us just develop those skills because I think my reflection on what you're saying is this isn't this isn't going to happen by osmosis this isn't going to happen passively if we really believe in the weightiness of scripture mm. it's it's actually almost an intentional focus in our lives as an individual and as a community to actually grow in those skills so what would you what advice would you give for someone who's sort of like do you know what I want to do this I want to read a letter of Paul and think I get how that fits in. Yeah. Or I want to hear a verse on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians and think, but what was he actually saying in Galatians? Yeah. I think it depends who you are. I think the nature of a church community is that different people will have different interests, different gifts, different passions, and that's absolutely fine. I think I think if you're, if you're a teacher... You know, Timothy's message is, is a lot about teaching. What is your role as a teacher? I think it's to, to do this stuff on behalf of those who really have uh, little energy for it or find it really is just not them. It's not the way they, they operate. Um, there's a certain kind of mind that loves this stuff. For some people, it's, it's too much. Um, and I, accept, I fundamentally accept that, you know, and, and my job is to make it as easy as possible for them not to have to do all the work, mm-hmm. but to, to explain it as clearly as possible so that, so that they can hear God's word without having to do the studying. Mm-hmm. So that's n- number one. Um, I mean, Alongside that, I would encourage people to have a go, you know, read scripture. You don't have to do the whole study, commentaries, you know, background research. Uh, but maybe you know, what works for you, if, 
if it's the Gospels, if it's the Psalms, then feast on the Psalms. You know, that, that's all right. That's okay. Um, secondly, um, if you are interested, then there are different things that make it easier. Uh, a basic one is, is a good translation, which basically means a readable translation. Every Bible that you, you can buy today is going to be a solid, reliable translation. And a lot of the debate about which is better is a silly debate because they're all good. And they're all written by the same people, but just for different purposes. You know, they're trying to do different things. So find one that helps you, that, that, that you're going to feast on rather than struggle with. Uh, uh, yes. So, um, I think another tip would be if you want to tackle a, a, a letter or a, a book, there are introductions, New Testament introductions, Old Testament introductions, which give you a little 10 page, um, 20 page overview for that particular letter. So the first thing I did when I started studying 1 Timothy, you know, six weeks ago, was, was get a couple of um, New Testament introductions and read the chapter on 1 Timothy. That will fill in a lot of the, the historical background, the context, the situation, what the overall argument is, um, without you having to do, you know, the primary research. Um, and I, I can recommend some, some really good New Testament introductions. Uh, read the chapter and it will pay off in, in you know, the dividend when you then read the, the, the letter itself will be immense. Because you, you'll, you'll be able to know what's going on. Um, read a commentary, but, but read a commentary. Don't, don't start with a commentary like that. That is... If, you really, if you're really struggling with a particular verse and you want to deeply dive into the, as, all, the, all the learning there is about that particular verse, the Greek, the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, everything that anyone has ever said about that verse in the history of biblical scholarship, get something this size. Start with something like that. Um, Tom Wright has all of that knowledge, but he condenses it into something that anyone can pick up and read, and and he he will he and others like him will will make um, a, a paragraph a chapter come alive. That you'll see both what the original meaning was, but also how it applies to you. Um, Another good good example is Gordon Fee on the pastorals. I would recommend. I, I think that's a very good, accessible commentary, um, but 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 solid. Um, I think that would be it. The final tip I'd say is if you hear people quoting Paul out of context to win an argument, challenge them. Yeah. I think that's a good. Um, it's something I should do more of. I, I, I often overhear it and walk away saying, oh, you know, tutting in my, in my brain. And I, I should more often say, hang on a minute. Um, 
what, what, what did he mean when he said we know what he said but what did he mean and how do you know what he meant thanks Bill that's right we want to be good intelligent readers of Paul and we're grateful for you helping us with how we can progress with you're that. very welcome Alice for those who are following Bible with Bill then we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy we are over the next few yeah I've no idea how long it'll go on brilliant uh, I've in, in my, I've got four or five in mind. Perfect. We may sprinkle some one-offs in, yeah. in between them. Um, there are six chapters in one Timothy. There are six chapters so in one Timothy. roughly a chapter a month, along with what Bill's saying. Yeah, so the, the next one um, will be diving into this question of two different kinds of teaching. Um, and we're going to be looking at chapter one mm-hmm. and um, just exploring... What, what that looks like yeah so maybe for people who are following we've got a couple of options that you can we can either just you can just do a chapter a month or just read the letter again and again and again yeah. the whole letter just put that practice into i like that practice it was it was designed to be read in one whole yeah sitting absolutely and reread and reread over the next few months and marinate yeah. in it that would be good not personally, maybe. <laughs> that might be stretching the analogy. Yeah. But have our hearts and minds just sitting in the letter. Mm. And then every month or so, Bill will be helping to yeah. unpack it more. But also feel free to come and chat at any time. Yeah. I've said this yeah. in every single one yeah. of these podcasts, and very few people do. But I really mean it. You know, <laughs> yeah. if, if you're reading 1 Timothy and there's something you don't like or doesn't make sense, then please, you know, come and have a chat. Brilliant. That's it. Au revoir, bientôt. Mm, Until the next time. Until the next time. Okay.